0: events in the course of history have been given more significance than has the crowning of a new king or monarch. The coronation of a nation's sovereign ruler. No expense is spared in that great event. In the past, a priceless crown has been commissioned and unveiled at the coronation. Guest lists include the wealthiest most famous, most powerful people in their day. To not be at such an event would be social and political suicide. Masses of people throng at the site of the coronation as we saw yesterday. No one wanted to miss what would be one of the most historical events of our lives. And in fact, many here this morning will see a second coronation during their life. Priests and religious leaders were called to pray over this ceremony, even placing the crown on the king, to bring this event some sense of solemnness and even holiness. Yet there was a coronation that we should never forget, the mocking crown of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's a coronation like none other in history. It's a coronation in which the crown is twisted vines and thorns. It's a coronation, not viewed by honored guests, but by the most cruel and ruthless spectators. It's a coronation, not meant for honor, but for shame and degradation. Yet, in the words of Joseph from the Old Testament, or they meant for harm. God meant for good. Little did they know the eternal significance of what they were doing. More than history was being made. Eternity was being made. They had hoped to mark him for shame, but they marked him for glory. But there has never been a more holy or sacred act performed at the hand of sinners than when when they crudely crowned my Savior. He was never more a king than he was just then. We must realize the atrocities that took place right before Jesus went to the cross revolved around a claim. Jesus would not deny he was the king of the Jews. When asked by Pilate in John 18, 37, if he was in fact the king, he responds with, you say that I am king. In other words, what you say is true. Had he simply said he was a prophet, a teacher, or even a messiah, Pilate would have set him free. But he stood before the court as the king of kings and lord of lords. He made it clear that Pilate would take no place that day. He would be out of Pilate's hand. Jesus answered, You would have no power at all against me if it had not been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. This morning, while you can freshly see in your minds the coronation of King Charles III, I want to take you back to the crowning, the coronation of the Christ. The day when he ripped the throne from the prince of this world, the day he was declared even by his own judge Behold your king. Although the tools of his coronation were not made of gold and jewels, they had more significance than all the earth's wealth could ever buy. Let's look at the tools used for the coronation of the Christ. These tools still cry out that blood-stained gospel to this day. You see, before we understand the significance of what was taking place that day. We must understand a simple truth Paul reminded us of. Jesus came as the second Adam. In other words, he had come to reverse the mess the first Adam had got us in. He came as man because it was man who got us into a mess to start with, and a man would have to pay the price. He came as God because only God could be the sinless sacrifice. Only that God-man could stand as mediator between heaven and earth. He held the perfect bloodline, the perfect pedigree to be our king. He came to serve as a substitute, to represent us and take our place. The king had first to be a qualified representative of his people. Something happened in Pilate's hall that is very significant to us. And that's the encounter with Barabbas. Barabbas was called by John as a robber. But in Mark's account, we get more information about him. He was called a rebel and a murderer. The reason Pilate chose him was that he was a dangerous figure, a reflection of the worst that man could be and a threat to society. When Jesus took this man's guilt and punishment, he was in fact taking it for us all. Sin had left us all a death penalty, but Jesus came to take that penalty on himself. Sin has left us abound by the chains of our sins and failure. As a matter of fact, the name Brabus means sons of the father. What an apt description of a man. But the virgin-born Savior, Son of God, took the place of us all as sons and daughters. We are sons and daughters of the Father. He didn't merely go to the cross because of Barabbas' guilt, but for all our guilt. In his earthly coronation, there were no jewels of gold adorning him, just your chains and mine. He bore the bondage and punishment that belongs to you and me. Like Barabbas, we weren't fit to be set free. But the King has taken our place, our penalty, our sin. It was said of the great early reformer Martin Luther that when he first realizes the depths of what Jesus had endured for him, it was said that his fellow monks around him found him in his room sobbing his heart out, saying, For me, for me. We are as all as guilty as Barabbas when it comes to Christ dying on that cross. In an interview with Mel Gibson in the making of the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I was taken by something that happened in the filming. Mel Gibson said it was his hand that drived the nails into the cross, in this movie. He never wanted to forget the fact that it was him who sent Christ to the cross. But I'm here to tell you this morning, it really wasn't just the Jews that crucified him, nor was it the cruelty of the Romans. The hammer was in your name and mine. Your guilt, your sin, your rebellion was the reason Jesus went to that cross. The sacrificial lamb wasn't enough to cover the depth of our guilt. It took the lamb of God. This was not a British cat of nine tails. This was a Roman flagrum. The great difference is that this was more of a weapon of torture than a whip. It was embedded with sharp bone, sharp metal, nails, glass, weights, anything that would cut into the flesh. As soon as the leather wrapped around the back, the Roman soldier would jerk the whip as if a spinning top, so that the points would scratch and rip out the flesh. The damage this Roman device made is left to our imagination. Historians who lived that day, recorded what it meant to witness such an event. First century historian Flavius Josephus testified in his writings to the fact that certain rebel Jews were torn to pieces by the scourging before being crucified. Third century historian Eusebius speaks of these devices as being used at his time and witnessed that Their bodies were frightfully lacerated. Christian martyrs in Smyrna were so torn by the scourges that their veins were laid bare and the inner muscles, sinews, even entrails were exposed. Other historians have described the skin as being so lacerated that their rib bones would be visible through shredded flesh. Sometimes these flagrums had hooks on the end, giving them the name Scorpions. The criminal was made to stoop, which meant limited his movement, and exposed his back and tightened his muscles. Two soldiers were then used to scourge a victim, leaving no time for one to catch his breath before the next flagram ploughed into the bank. Was condemned, only to be scourged, would be would either die at the whipping post or would die within two or three days later from loss of blood and infection. Although we often think of these 39 lashes, that is merely Hebrew law. But the Romans had no such rule. They merely wanted to whip. They merely wanted the whipped to have enough strength to be crucified. On many occasions, men never made it to the cross, but died at the scourging post. The deep tears, lacerations, and abundant blood loss left the victim half dead. No wonder Christ could not carry his own cross. Created originally to get information out of Rome's enemies, and it worked very effectively. As this device tore into the backs of the enemy, they would confess to anything. One writer believed that this is why Pilate has said to have been even more afraid after Jesus' scourging. Because he realized this man was not lying, and the reality of his claim as the Son of God was overwhelming. This may not measure up to some of the cleaned-up versions of Calvary that we've been accustomed accustomed to, but it matches the words of the prophet Isaiah, who declared in chapter 52, verse 14, "Just as there were many who were astonished to him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance; he was so horribly disfigured." His own mother and disciples would have a difficult time recognizing Jesus after scourging. It also fulfills the prophecy in Psalm 129, verse 3. The flowers plowed on my back. They made long their furrows. We now understand why Jesus said, the spoke of his blood, blood being poured out for many, Why would we want to relive this horrendous event? But Jesus encouraged us to remember that his body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. No matter how many stripes cut furrows in his back, every stripe and every drop of blood secured the power of healing on our behalf. When that mangled back touched that wooden cross, healing was secured for us. And that atoning blood. But why a crown of thorns? Is there any significance there? If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you will discover that in God's original creation there were no thorns, only beauty and fruitfulness. Our work was easy, our tasks a pleasure. But when man sinned, Failure not only cursed himself, but the ground with thorns. Genesis 3 says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. The writer of the Hebrews adds, But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and on the verge of being cursed. crown of thorns, represented the curse of sin on our life. The curse of a futile life that produces more pain than fruit. Sin bears more pain, more frustration, more death into your life. The curse of a future punishment. Jesus didn't recognize that curse but was crowned with it. He became the curse for us. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Harshness and cruelty entered into nature because of the curse of Adam's fall. What a cruel chore that must have been for some Roman soldier to create. What would possess a man to think of such a thing and go that much trouble for sick pleasure? It would take malice and forethought, a meticulous effort, and even pain to make a crown of thorns for Jesus. That crown, he never asked to be removed. It would go with him to the cross. He wears the crown of death so that we can wear a crown of life. Because he became our curse. he has reversed the curse for as many as will embrace that blood-stained cross. Like Abraham, after trying to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, we have found our sacrifice among the thorns. Matthew says that after they scourged him, they first stripped him. I don't know about you, but when I see the strips of cloth off of his body, my mind can't help but go back to the garden where Adam and Eve's purity had been stolen by sin and they realized they were naked. The shame of sin had entered their life. So the open disgrace and shame that Jesus bore was due to the sin that Adam and Eve committed. Adam chose to hide himself in his shame. But Jesus chose to be paraded before the mocking eyes of the accusers. He chose to bear my shame and yours. But something else happened. They placed upon those open wounds a purple robe. No doubt, as soon as that robe touched his body, it became dark and soaked in his own blood. I am again reminded of Adam and Eve. When they came before God in their shame, God sacrificed animals and shed their blood to clothe them. Now the Lamb has given us his blood-soaked covering to take away our shame. They did this to mock him, to make fun, to heap shame on him. They would mockingly bow before him. But that would, be, that would not be the last time they would bow before the king. Philippine 2 says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The reed they had placed in his hand had become a weapon against him as they strike his head, driving the thorns deeper with every blow. The reed was not thin, not some weedy plant, but it was a bit like a bamboo cane. The Greek word for smote is a word in an imperfect tense, meaning. They kept striking him repeatedly. Realized that by the time he stood before that crowd again, the thorns weren't merely on his head, but in his head. But with every blow, blood coated the thorns. Things would never be the same again. Pilate then presented Jesus before his accusers but dares to say, Behold your King. Will you behold him this morning and reject what he has endured for you? Will you, like them, refuse to give Jesus the Lordship over your life? You may be sitting here today declaring, as Pilate did, This has nothing to do with me. But I tell you, it has everything to do with you. The crowned Christ has been presented to you this day. There is no neutral ground. You either accept him or reject him. Either his blood will be upon your heart. Or upon your hand. No matter how much water Pilate used, he could never wash his hands of the blood of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The choice is yours today. Will your blood, will his blood, be on your hands or on your heart?